0: Coming up on Art Palace.
1: So even the show is called American Painting the 80s. Yeah. These All of the paintings, with the exception of one, are from the 1970s.
0: Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Kate Bonanzinga, director of the School of Art, College of Design, Architecture, Art and Planning at the University of Cincinnati, and guest curator of our special exhibition, American Painting, The 80s Revisited. So tell me a little bit about how this exhibition came to be and how you got involved with it.
1: So it was uh, really thrilling for me, actually. I got a call from Cynthia Omnaeus out of the blue. It was in February of 2020, so right before COVID. Mm-hmm. Bit. And she told me a little bit about this exhibition and asked me if I might be able to make, make time and have the interest in guest curating it. And I leapt at the opportunity, and then within a month, she called me back and said, we're putting a hold on this. COVID had settled in. The museum was soon to close to the public. So she said, we'll call you back when we're ready to reignite the plans, if and when that happens. Called me again in November and said, now we're, you know, we were waiting, 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 but now we really want to hurry up and rush (laughs) because we want to open this thing in around March. Are you still interested? And I said, yes.
0: Awesome. So that's how
1: it happened. And I think that Cynthia thought of me just because I'm a uh, 21st century specialist. Really, contemporary art is my is my area of expertise. That's what most of my background is in. And she thought it would sort of fill this void on the curatorial staff at the museum. There was no one really that mm. was leaping at the opportunity to guest curate this. Julie was completely overwhelmed and booked with the Duven ex- right. exhibition. And so they just uh, didn't have the staff power to really take it on. So that's why she. I think she yeah. called me.
0: Yeah. And all of these works were collected by the same person or right. the same people,
1: correct? Right. So that's the interesting story. This ex- exhibition was actually curated originally by a woman named Barbara Rose. Okay. She was an art historian, critic, curator who resided in New York City in the se- 1970s. This show was on view at the Gray Art Gallery in 1979 at New York University. John and Ronnie Shore, who are Cincinnati-based collectors, saw that exhibition at the Gray and ended up buying the whole thing in 1984. Wow. And it's been on view over the decades in their various residences in Florida, Cincinnati, and New York City. And in 2018, they gave the whole thing to the Cincinnati Art Museum. Yeah. So the original uh, exhibition curated by Barbara Rose was 41 paintings. Okay. What you see here is 40 paintings and one drawing because the drawing that this painting replaces, I'm sorry, the painting that this drawing replaces was gifted to MoMA, Museum uh, of Modern Art okay. in New York City. It was, so I, I kind of need to digress here for a second. After this show closed in New York City in October of 1979, it traveled to Houston, Tel Aviv, several cities in Europe. And the person responsible for traveling it was a guy named Paul Haim, who was a dealer. He had purchased the entire exhibition from the artists, each of the individual artists, Mm -hmm. toured the exhibition. When it came back in 1982, he was storing it. And then John Shore called him in '84, said, I'd like to buy the whole thing. Haim was motivated to sell because he'd been storing the whole thing. And then it came to the Shores. Between 1982, when it, the exhibition tour ended in mm-hmm. Europe, and 1984, when Haim sold it to the Shores, he had sold the Susan Rothenberg painting of the horse that was in the exhibition to another collector mm. named Edward Broida. And Broida, in turn, donated it to MoMA. Gotcha so black in place that you see an image of here on the wall label that is in the moma collection Mm -hmm. in the meantime sometime between 84 and today the shores bought this drawing to replace sort of honor susan rothenberg's role in Mm -hmm. this exhibition so this is the only drawing in this exhibition it's also the only piece that is not part of the permanent collection of the cincinnati art museum because the Shores still own this and okay. lent it to the museum for this exhibition.
0: So you said this, uh, we're standing in the smaller gallery. Right, the smaller
1: of, of the two. Yep. Of the
0: two spaces on yep. the third floor. Yep. And you said this is sort of how you imagine most people would start, probably because we're coming in from the elevator. If you want to save your knees, right. <laughs> take the elevators out right. of so the stairs. Um, and so what? Uh, why, why do you think this selection of paintings is a good starting point?
1: Well, first we have the sort of explanatory wall text, right. which goes into the story that I just shared with you yeah, about yeah. Barbara Rose. And the other important point that's iterated in that text that I wanted to share with you before we start about the individual works is that in New York City in 1979, painting was um, quote-unquote dead, mm. okay? So the avant-garde was interested in sculpture, performance, video painting was sort of this antique medium that progressive artists supposedly were no longer interested in. So Barbara Rose, the curator, resisted that and said, no, there's really innovative painting that's happening right here, right now, and that's what I want to exhibit at Mm -hmm. New York University. So through studio visits, individual studio visits with the artists, she made her selection of works. And as you see in this gallery, and we'll see throughout the exhibition, she had a preference for abstraction. Mm-hmm. And so this very first painting that you see on your right as you exit the elevator is by an artist named Mark Schlesinger, who all and also all of the artists except for one lived in New York City in 1979. Schlesinger was one of the 40 that lived in New York City. The one who didn't is Sam Gilliam, who Mm -hmm. was in D.C. and still lives in D.C. This, to me, kind of evokes pattern and decoration and pointillism that we think of with 19th century art, but just really detailed marks on canvas, swirls of color, Kind of, to me, reminiscent of quilt making. Maybe sort of more of a feminine approach to art making, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the way we designed the exhibition so that paintings that you could see from a single vantage point in 1979, you can see from a single vantage point in 2021. Okay. So that's what Lauren Walker did a really brilliant job of. the, the exhibition designer. I had some archival photographs from the gray that I shared with her and said, if there's any way you can recreate those relationships, I think that would really be an ideal way of mm. conceptualizing how to place the paintings. Yeah. So in 79, Schlesinger and Moskowitz, which you see to its left, were near each other, as was Elizabeth Murray that you see here on, in the vista as you get off the elevator, The other reason we wanted the Elizabeth Murray piece to be the, really the first one you see as you're standing in the elevator is because she's one of the artists who really came to international acclaim between the time that this was exhibited in 79 and the time of her death. And this painting is an important piece because it's one of the first that is not, that she painted that's not a rectangle. So she became really interested in alternatives to the rectangular canvas eventually she actually fractured her canvases so mm-hmm. a, there are multiple pieces or components to a single artwork but this one you can see she just sort of tilted on its edge and uses her typical bright color palette which is I associate with her roots in Chicago and uh, the chicago imagists as much as i associate with new york new york abstraction of the late 1970s but she really went on to be acclaimed as one of the most important artists of the 1990s in the united states
0: yeah probably the the most the biggest name that popped out to me definitely yeah. while just walking around the the room was elizabeth murray yeah and i think it is a great piece to to see when you open up the elevator because it yeah. does Kind of upend your notions of painting right off the bat. Like, okay, you know, it's 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 tilted. It's yeah. not quite a rectangle. Yeah. Um, and the way that the shapes uh, play with the edges of yeah. the painting are also really kind of messing with it. And uh-huh. the way like that the the pictureness of it and
1: its objectness, I guess, great um, way to put it. And the colors too, just like the purple and red yeah. and expanse of yeah. green. It's really what we might call a lipstick palette.
0: Yeah. And these and these uh, two all are also such great little like yin and yang here mm-hmm. of the Moskowitz and the Schlesinger yeah. of like overload and then this like place to kind of take a breath in yeah. that sea of red. Um, and it does message.
1: look like a sea of ray. And unless you look really closely, you can barely see that silhouette of a yeah. windmill.
0: Yeah, I noticed it more when we were walking back into the room. Yeah. I think the light was hitting it from an angle. It was like, oh, there's a big old windmill on It, takes, it takes a
1: minute. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, well, let's move on and sure. go into the next and to the, the main gallery. Oh, and we also have another piece here yeah. at the top of the stairs, too. So, in
1: this transitional gallery, we have another really important artwork by Sam Gillian who is coincidentally African American and is sometimes criticized for not addressing issues of race and identity in his artwork. Mm -hmm. But since he began making art in the early 1960s up until today, he has remained steadfastly a formalist and is very proud of and committed to that. So what you see here is a collage of canvases that he painted, cut up, and then collage back on top of each other. And one of the things I like most about this painting is its attention to detail. So you can see that it wraps around mm. the edge of the stretcher. So you, if you peer around its side, it looks like the painting continues into the wall behind it. Yeah, And its beveled edges are also really, really gorgeous.
0: Yeah. And people who know the Cam collection might recognize the name from his piece in, uh, that were, was on display for many years called Arch. It's uh, just a sort of hanging fabric piece yeah. that's uh, stained. Yeah. Um, so
1: And that's actually on view right now oh, in the it? gallery below us. I'm yes.
0: glad you know this because it's been so long since I've been here.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's um, those types of works are the ones that he became best known for, are the stained drape mm-hmm. canvases because they really play with architectural space and are part painting, part sculpture. But he also did these collages throughout his career that he's less known for, but are equally that are equally magnificent, yeah. in my opinion. But it is a treat for Cam visitors to be able to see both types mm-hmm. of paintings that he's rendered in a single visit today.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely this. I would not, if I would never have guessed this was his. In fact, right. When you said Sam Gilliam was in the show earlier, I kind of thought where? <laughs> like, yeah. Because yeah, I was yeah. expecting one of those draped pieces. So. Yeah. Well.
1: Well, he had started doing the draped pieces in the mid 70s. So at the time that he made this one, he was already doing mm-hmm. those, but he was he's throughout his career done many different types of work. All of it formal, all of it really pushing the properties of paint. And this is just an example of how he was doing the draped as well as the collages at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're sort of they're they they do feel like Sort of opposite ends of a spectrum, in yeah. a way, because this one is so built up in this like encaustic uh, paint, and then it also the structure of it feels um, extra rigid in the yeah. in the way that it, it feels very solid. Uh, and so, yeah, compared to those pieces, which are you know you you a breeze could change their structure, right? Right. Um, and the paint is is just staining the surface. So that you're always very. Um, aware of the canvas as a material, uh, they're so different.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. But all both of them are really pushing the the sort of boundaries of what a painting can be. Yeah, I think that that's what they have in common.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And I think you'll find that throughout the show uh, is that all of the artists are pushing the material qualities of paint. Yeah, beyond what they might have done prior to the time that these artists did that.
0: Well, you said there's a ton of paintings. So I know we're not going to probably have a chance to talk about each and every one of them because we have, uh, was it 41? There's
1: 41 works, including the The drawing. drawing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's 40 paintings. And I will say all of them for our listeners are large scale abstract canvases. Yes. Um, One of the first ones you see when you walk into the third gallery, which is the biggest gallery of the exhibition is a piece called Strobia by Nancy Graves mm-hmm. who was another one of the better known artists in the exhibition. Yeah. And she has many reasons why she was important. One of them is that she was in 1969, I think it was. She graduated from Yale. Oh, this is another undercurrent Russell is that most of these artists are educated. Most of them earned their masters of fine arts. There are a few exceptions, but She is one of the, Mm -hmm. amongst the majority in the show that are educated with master's degrees in fine arts. She earned hers from Yale in 1964. And five years after that, she was the subject of a solo exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art. She was the youngest artist to earn that recognition and only the fifth woman to have earned a solo exhibition at the Whitney at that time. So she was, you know, launched quite early Mm -hmm. to earn some recognition. In the early 70s, she was sculpting, sculpting sort of mixed media abstractions that referenced animals. So in the late 70s, she returns to painting, which she had been doing as a graduate student at Yale. And this is an example of her return to painting. And you can see, again, like Elizabeth Murray, Graves is using really bright colors. Graves is, is like sort of edge-to-edge edge of the canvas, highly-charged gestures, which is where I think she got the title, strobia, which is not a word in English, but if you think of stroboscope, it's a light that generates bursts of bright mm. light, and um, it also has a lot of movement, so it's about corporeal movement and bursts of light all in one painting. And she used NASA images. She was became well-known for really researching her images. So Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of these artists were about self-expression or sort of internal thoughts, internal feelings, internal anxieties, and expressing them on canvas, Graves was really about the exterior world and researching her subjects and then translating them into abstract forms. And in that sense, she was really prescient because many artists today are research-oriented, so she deserves credit for that as well.
0: Yeah, I know in our, uh, this is another artist that we have in the collection as well. And in in that other painting, you can sort of see when you look, what looks just to be totally abstract at first, you can start to see these shapes of fish and things swimming around in this uh, sea of color and Mm -hmm. lines. So yeah, it's like these these little uh, shapes in this one that I I don't know exactly what they are, but they feel almost like cellular or something. And Uh uh, maybe it's just, you know, the sort of, covid
1: environment Uh, (laughs) that that we've become accustomed to yeah definitely
0: we see everything in that way maybe now but um, there's something that does feel almost biological Mm -hmm. about that shape and it Mm -hmm. it feels it feels really specific it doesn't feel just like made up Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't feel arbitrary in the way that maybe some of the other mark making you feel like oh that's just sort of expressive line making yeah whereas those feel like no that's supposed to be something even if it's sort of taken out of its original environment, and now I can't exactly place what it is or what it, it's supposed to be, like you kind of mentioned NASA images. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it could be... Satellite vary, images. It could be, you know, some, it could be something geological or right. something. You know, it could be like a mountain range from, from above. It could be so many things, but here it's just sort of acting... In a you know purely purely formal way almost
1: yeah and that's the image? that's the image that you'll see when you're driving up to the museum mm-hmm. it's featured in the signage at the foot of the driveway
0: right yeah well it's 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 super colorful like you mentioned yeah. so I think it's it's definitely an eye catching one that I'm sure yeah. that a lot of people will enjoy right away because it is it is just sort of this kaleidoscopic yeah uh, view
1: okay so you want to pick another one.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about,
0: <laughs> I don't know anything about this one uh, by Elaine Cohen. Um, yeah.
1: It's, as you can see, is one of the harder edge paintings in the exhibition. So it's really clean lines, lots of rectangles, a palette of black, blue, red, and sort of a mauvey beige, a little bit of orange in there. And she was actually a graphic designer. Hmm. She recently passed away in 2016. And with her husb- husband, became really well known for uh, environmental graphics. So she created a signage motif and campaign for many of the modernist architects for their buildings. Architects like Philip Johnson and Aero hmm. Saarinen. But she also painted throughout her career and really saw the paintings as an outlet for her own individual private vision and form of expression. But you can definitely see the graphic design oh, yeah. uh, training in this painting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I chose it specifically because it, it seems about as opposite of yeah. <laughs> of the last painting. Yeah. So I was like, let's go to that one. That's like, there <laughs> could, could not be a more opposite approach, yeah. which is kind of cool to see. Like, I think in a way you can think like, oh, 80s paintings, like, I know what that looks like. But mm-hmm. really, I mean, this is a good example of like, actually, there's still so much variety, even when we're talking about paintings from the 80s that are Totally abstract.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's absolutely true. You see so many different styles. And just based on what you said, I wanted to point out that these, all of the paintings, with the exception of one, are from the 1970s. Hmm. So even the show is called American Painting the 80s. Yeah. The,
0: sh-
1: the paintings are from the 70s, many from 1979, the year that the right. exhibition was first on view at the Gray Art Gallery. So critics, there was a lot of media about this show. Mm-hmm. In part, I think, because Barbara Rose was so well-known, but the critics really took issue with the title. They said, how can you predetermine a (laughs) decade before the decade happens? So that was one of the things they hated. The other thing that I take issue with, though none of them said anything about this, is that she called it American painting, and actually it was New York City painting, right? Because all the artists were living in New York City except for Sam Gilliam. So there's really two misnomers in yeah. the title and we decided to title this exhibition for 2021 American Painting the 80s Revisited because we're revisiting her ideas mm-hmm. from that time Barbara Rose's ideas and you know I really credit her for being very courageous like she was so confident that this painting was the wave of the future mm-hmm. that abstract painting was a wave of the future that she titled her exhibition after the decade that succeeded it rather than the one that it actually took place in.
0: I feel like people are always declaring painting dead, though. Yeah. And then it's like, it never really does. Like, well, that's right. It's just a constantly like, oh, it's dead again. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, it's never dead. It's never dead. It's always And around. I think
1: that's something visitors could keep in mind was Barbara Rose's courage in, in curating this exhibition and New York University's courage in showing the work, even though painting was in disfavor at the time. Could that have maybe made a difference in painter's commitment to painting? Is that mm-hmm. something that they said, oh, well, if Barbara Rose thinks this is the wave of the future and New York University thinks it is as well, I feel confident in continuing. Yeah. Or maybe I'll shift from sculpture to painting because these important people think it's, it's okay to do that.
0: The other thing too about this, these works being from the late 70s instead of the 80s, something that came up um, in another episode when I was talking with uh, one of our Uh, curatorial assistants, who's now a curator in Kansas City, um, is he kind of brought up the idea that, you know, really, a lot of times we break things down by decade, but Mm. post-war... A lot of things, you really, if you start at 45 and move in 10 years after that, there's actually a lot, sometimes more similarities between say like 45 to 55, 55 to 65, 65 to 75, 75 to 85. And i, I the more I think about it, the more I'm always like, yeah, that is kind of true. Yeah. I mean, there's two, like when you think about the 60s, I feel like the beginning of the 60s and the end of the 60s look totally different nothing alike, yeah you know so, absolutely whereas you know a lot of times you know I think the the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s look a lot alike mm-hmm. um so you know I don't know if we're still in that phase <laughs> anymore mm-hmm. but um where things kind of move in that way but I feel like this work fits into that where it's like yeah it's into the 70s and beginning of the 80s they're kind of all you know these are all arbitrary <laughs> <Absolutely>, <laughs> lines anyway yeah, it doesn't yeah. really matter but We can go around the corner, keep moving. We should say this space, Uh, I don't know if we we talked, we talked a little bit about the exhibition design, but it's so strange to be on the third floor now um, with... With these walls here because we used to have this sort of just hole in the middle of the gallery but uh we've we've built extra walls to accommodate all of these paintings so it it just feels totally transformed it's just fascinating to be walking around this space in a totally different way
1: and that's something i wanted to point out to the visitors is that when you walk into the, the third gallery which we're in right now the walls are probably what would you say russell 12 feet high about? they're I think they're 12 yeah, foot high walls. Yeah, they're walls. probably
0: 12, 12 feet right thereabouts, yeah.
1: And we constructed those to create enough wall space to hang all 41 works of art. The painting, the painting, The paintings are very tightly hung in the sense that they're close together, which is another thing that we replicated from New York University's format. So there's a lot of energy in the gallery, energy sort of between the paintings, the way they're interacting with one another visually. Um, and I think each painting is in and of itself a really powerful statement, but then taken as a collection, it's, they're even more magnificent. So that's something to keep in mind that the, the way we hung them, not only in their proximity to one another, but also in which one we hung next to the next was really in an, an attempt to, to our best ability, replicate the feeling that was evoked in New York in 1979.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really great little conversations happening between these paintings, like that we're standing looking at this painting uh, by Thornton Willis called Blue Soldier, which is mostly blue and yellow. And then that we see those the same blue and yellow next to it in this painting by Louisa Chase called Ocean, yeah. um, even though they're very different in their approaches, um, yeah. but you you have that little bit of a relationship between the palette, which is great. And then it's fun because the next painting here, uh, which is called Ghost Rider by Stuart Hitch, has the sort of similar shapes and these kind of explosions mm. that you see in the Louisa Chase, yeah. but a very different palette. So it's like, it's this great little, like... Uh, It's like a game of telephone (laughs) or something, you know. Yeah, it's really cool. And then I feel like that palette continues over here into the next one. And so I can totally understand like the logic of all. How we decided? Yeah, yeah. yeah, It looks great. Ghost Rider. That's such an such an unusual painting. Yeah, I love
1: it. And he became well known for that type of work. This sort of one critic called it. They look like corporate logos. These sort of Hmm. starburst patterns, singular image on a diametrically different colored background yeah
0: but then it's like it's too clumsy for that yeah like and, and, and the thing i noticed about it immediately is that little like edge of yellow that's like poking through yeah so it's like you painted it probably painted it yellow first painted the the black and then painted the red over top of it but like left those little traces yeah peeking through and that's like what gives it this strange um
1: you know it's a painting and not something else because of those subtleties
0: yeah yeah it also gives that like it makes that uh the sort of dark black blue in the middle uh feel more like an actual void there's actually something weirdly three-dimensional about it because i can almost read that yellow is like the edge of a cut <laughs> mm-hmm. um so it's weird because it's not like I mean, there's nothing about it that would make you feel like, oh, it's some like Trump Loi painting or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does play with that, to me at least, um, that sense of like space and void or something that uh, is a little surprising.
1: And this one by Joan Thorne is probably the most tactile of yeah. all the paintings. So there are many tactile paintings, but just the lusciousness and the thickness of the paint is really exciting to see. Yeah. It almost looks like icing, doesn't it, on it a cake?
0: It does. I was just about to say, this is like, they should have a guard posted here all day.
1: No licking.
0: Can, <laughs> I'm like, is this, this, people going to want to touch this one? <laughs> 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 that palette. Th- th- there is something about this, like these color choices, which do, again, even though this is from 1979, to me, if I was to be like, make something where you were like, come up with an 80s palette, this would be it. Uh-huh. So I think they're. I think in that way they were yeah. right about like predicting yeah. what was coming. I mean, yeah. I feel like this is the palette that I associate with the '80s, at uh-huh. least a lot of the '80s. Maybe more like when this was sort of co-opted by sort of more commercial things. Yeah, yeah. you can totally see how this stock- pink
1: and green and avocado green and sort of turquoise blue, as well as royal blue.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, actually, in some ways, I think like. If I were to be, like just guess a time period based on like the popularity of these colors, I would definitely put it much later, probably because mm-hmm. I think of those colors as probably like later '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it was ahead of <laughs> ahead of pop culture in that way, yeah. at least. Because probably if you think of like what was going on in people's houses and things in 1979, it's probably a lot of I don't know. Avocado and yeah. Harvest Gold. That's right. <laughs> That's what my parents' get. was. And Jimmy, remember, Jimmy
1: Carter was president at the time yeah. in, the, in the United States. That shifted in 1980. Ronald Reagan became president, yeah. right? So Jimmy Carter was in the White House in his cardigan sweaters when this show took place. <laughs> Oil crisis was happening. All of that.
0: This is another painting. Have we used this also in um, ads?
1: That's on the banner. Okay. On the staircase as you enter the the exterior staircase as you enter the museum. And this is the painting I was telling you about, which is the only painting from the 1980s. Okay,
0: this is uh, Dennis Ashbaugh's Untitled.
1: From 1983. And the reason it's from 1983 is that when the exhibition toured to Europe, which I explained earlier, the final venue, which was the Golbeckian Foundation in Lisbon, Portugal, purchased five of the paintings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the paintings they purchased was by Dennis Ashbaugh. And this is the replacement of ostensibly selected by Barbara Rose to the collection by Ashbaugh. So then there were four other artists whose paintings were collected by the Golbeckian and she picked a piece by each of those artists to replace for the exhibition as well.
0: Yeah, this one is, I mean, again, compared uh, just to kind of keep harping on variety, um, it's it's so much more muted compared to a lot yeah. of the things around it. It's, it uses the white and, and it's sort of all these different shades of white and ivory. And is, are, is there, are there areas of, of blank canvas poking through or is it just just sort Let's of painting look. to look like a blank I th- canvas?
1: I think it's all painted, but I think you're right. It, the, the, the color is similar to what an un, uh, a white canvas Yeah, I think you're like. right.
0: Because I think it's on like a, it actually looks like the. I think actually the areas of canvas that you can see through are here on the edge, are like that darker canvas. Mm-hmm. I can see it on this side, yep. and it's actually not the sort of typical color canvas we imagine. It's it's that darker canvas. Um,
1: you can see a little bit of it through here, yeah. Russell, but not much of it. Most of it's painted.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the color I was reading as canvas is actually yeah is all paint. Right. Um,
1: and you can see in the wall label what the original piece looked like that the Golbeckian Foundation. Okay collected. So we have that on each of the wall labels for the pieces that were replaced. You'll see the original painting on the label. Right. I want to just point out this piece because it was created by a painter who was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, really? Yeah. His name is Edward Euclid. Okay. And then resided in New York City, and he was an apprentice to Helen Frankenthaler, who was a well-known painter. Mm Mm-hmm. And created this beautiful canvas that I really think of as combining the rigor of geometry, because a lot of the forms are geometric as far as the squares and what look like uh, the, the arcs that you might make with a compass. Mm-hmm. But then it's very gestural as well. Yeah. So I, I love that about it. It's, it's juxtaposition of those two things and he as far as i know did never made a living as a painter so he was working at bars and clubs while he was helen frankenthaler's apprentice trying to make a go of it as a painter and he ended up opening his own restaurant on west broadway in manhattan mm-hmm. and it's called edwards and it's still there so if you're ever in manhattan mm-hmm. want to check out this restaurant made by this uh, created by this really creative person who was trained as a painter it's there for you to uh, check out. And I'm, coincidentally, on every, I think it's the third Monday of every month, he serves Cincinnati specials there. Oh. Like LaRose's and Montgomery <laughs> Ribs and that kind of thing.
0: I love this like pencil line down the middle of it. That's yeah. great. Thinness of that. Like, It shows some it's... of
1: the process too, yeah. I think. Some of the thinking process.
0: This one I feel like I've seen before, but I'm not sure if I'm just.
1: So this crazy. is this is one of the few artists in the show who's untrained. Okay, and he he I should say he was he passed away in 2017. Leonard Contino, mm-hmm. and he started his painting career as a pinstriper on cars in his in Brooklyn when he was a teenager, and he suffered quadriplegia due to a, a diving accident and was in rehabilitation at the Rusk Institute at New York University mm-hmm. and met Mark DeSuvero okay. another artist who was in rehabilitation there physical rehabilitation and
0: people would m- most m- know that name probably just from the giant red sculpture outside of our building when you when you pull up that's uh and and from many other giant red sculptures you see outside of many other art art museums across the country
1: That's right and so Sufro encouraged him to become an artist, and Cantino did. And this, this is a painting he, uh, uh, one of the paintings he produced with a brace strapped to his arm, and typically hard edge became well-known for that, widely collected. He's part of many prestigious museum collections. But yeah, this is just black lines on white canvas.
0: Yeah, again, Lots very- of
1: triangles, they come together as a vantage point at the very top edge of the painting.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's really actually co- one of the few paintings you have a there's actually kind of another one again across from it talk kind of talking to it but it's one of the few pieces without any color really Mm -hmm. in the uh in the exhibition actually i i said this piece across from it has no color but now that i'm looking at it there's these really thin blue lines kind of
1: right through the brown yeah Yeah.
0: tracing yeah kind of
1: again these pencil lines and the the unprimed canvas that give you Mm -hmm. insights to the process and how he figured out where to place each shape
0: yeah, and this uh, this one is a lot more interesting. I think the closer you examine it as yeah. well, like I, I think from a from afar, I didn't notice that texture and the mm-hmm. and the way uh, it's like kind of that like gritty matte surface. It's so again, it's it's a, it's not quite as uh, delicious as our <laughs> painting over yeah. there that we think people might lick. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it has a it has a little bit of that like cake frosting kind yeah. of feeling to it as well this this, uh, when I turned the corner, this gold piece <laughs> just it's immediately amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it just really like, oh, it like kind of shocked me. I, I yeah. just was not expecting to see because of
1: its sort of heft. Yeah. And you know, it's got it's got clay in it. That's what gives it that oh. sort of earthy built up look. and then it's gold leafed on top of those layers of clay. And he made these sort of slashes, one that looks like an X through yeah. that the clay. But like Murray's piece, it's sort of a tilted rectangle, which sort of throws you off kilter. But it does, it looks like drying earth or the desert,
0: painted gold, doesn't it? Yeah. And I was going to try to attempt to say this artist's names and title, but this one is a a real mouthful. It is
1: Karl Apfelschnitt.
0: Apfelschnitt and X-I-N-T-A is the title. So, hmm that lean to it was yeah. immediately kind of
1: disarming isn't yeah, it yeah
0: yeah it's great this one uh that's kind of right next door to it uh by William Conlin, uh called uh Kinderhook Creek I, it really plays with my mind
1: uh-huh
0: um I, I I stared at it for quite a while just trying to figure out if the canvas was actually straight or not uh-huh it, it, in the way that the Elizabeth Murray and this one we just yeah. looked at it are, are not a square or not a rectangle. This one I thought for sure was not, and I'm pretty sure it is.
1: Yeah, I think it is too.
0: Yeah, it's just it's, a, it's just pulling some real optical effects on mm-hmm. you with these lines on the edge that are kind of bending in and these arcs that just kind of warp your sense of space. And it has that like super matte quality too that yeah it just it's
1: beautiful isn't it yeah it kind of reminds me of the Elaine listed Cohen that we were talking about earlier there's a graphic quality yeah, to it yeah and the sort of the, the colors and the way that the lines are placed. This is another beauty over here by Ron Gorchov that looks, the shape of the canvas is completely unexpected. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a saddle on a horse. Yeah. Doesn't it? And that's, he he became well known for that shape. He played around with different types of forms throughout his career. And this is the one he ended up really settling on. and very typical of what he would do like just put a monochromatic ground or sort of monochromatic you can see subtle colors in the background mm-hmm. and then he would use his left hand to create this kind of a shape looks like a comma you know you know a punctuation mm-hmm. mark left hand for the one on the left switch hands and then for the one on the right mm. he would he would uh, use his right hand. Oh, cool. But these little subtleties of the staples being evident, I kind of like that about it. Do you Again. happen
0: to know if he was a lefty or a righty?
1: I don't know. I don't know which, <laughs> which hand he privileged usually.
0: I would kind of want to know because now yeah. I'm looking at these, like if he started with the left, it makes me think maybe he was a lefty. Uh-huh. But, I mean, the shapes are so...
1: Similar, yeah. aren't they? But, but also unusual.
0: Yeah, it's hard to necessarily know which is like the 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 dominant hand in, uh-huh. which is not because I could also see that you know it would be interesting to start with your less dominant hand mm-hmm. where there's less control and you might come up with something a little more unexpected where your dominant hand is more likely to you know create something expected and right. so then it's kind of interesting to have to imitate that the accident yeah. I hope that's the story now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've talked my way through this, I hope that's the
0: case. <laughs> this one is great. I, this one also, like, I think, is one of the only things with like a really recognizable image. I mean, there's a few hands in the show. Actually, now that we say I said that,
1: Louisa Chase had this sort of cartoony looking yeah. hands, right?
0: Yeah, and this is a uh, Lois Lane, which is. A, I, I laughed when I saw that,
1: too. It was like, yeah. Lois Lane, okay. Is that Clark Kent's girlfriend? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting that you mentioned the image in this because Lois Lane, Robert Moskowitz, that did the windmill that we saw
0: mm-hmm. earlier,
1: and then Susan Rothenberg, horse image. Those three artists were part of an exhibition called The New Image Painting at the Whitney in 1978. Okay. So the year prior to this exhibition and became known for sort of combining abstraction and representation in yeah. the work. So it's very astute of you to notice that those three artists are really the ones that are, are the most image-based. And then Louisa Chase, who I just mentioned with the cartoony hands and sort of the thunderbolts coming out of them that we saw when we first made our first left turn back there, she was she's also associated with that movement.
0: I like I like that there there is something, whimsical about these like stretchy arms mm-hmm. um and you know the hands are not they don't have all the the strict uh anatomy of like a real hand so there's something a little cartoony yeah makes them a little silly and fun um which is not maybe what people expect from an abstract painting right um, so it, it is kind of, I like the way it, it, it's... They kind
1: of look like trees in a way, don't they? Yeah. With, t- with tall trunks and a few branches at the top.
0: And then just like inexplicably, one fingertip is all white on one and, and the pinky finger on another yeah. is all white. I mean, that's the other interesting thing is they're not a pair of hands too, right? Like
1: They're both left hands. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mean, when you see two hands, your mind assumes that they belong to the same body, but yeah. here they don't. And the and thing, this is another uh, great example of like that kind of black on black, where we have two shades of black and one that's more, I think, more reflective. It's yeah, the sort of background black is is more reflective, I think, than the the hand black, which is more matte. And I wonder, is that just, is it just unpainted? I mean, it's primed, probably, like the
1: oh the, yeah, the white maybe you're areas. Right. Yep.
0: Like, it's just an unpainted area, I yeah. think. That's what it looks like to me. Like, she's primed the canvas, so it's very white. And then um, it's just these little areas not filled in.
1: Mm-hmm. You're which, right.
0: Which that changes the story to yeah, me a little, a little bit, bit too, yeah. doesn't it? Like, it's yeah. not
1: for- that it's a
0: painted white finger, right. it's an unpainted finger.
1: The forgotten finger. <laughs>
0: yeah. And then... Uh, we're coming to the one that I literally made me go whoa <laughs> when I walked around the ga- when I first walked around the space uh, Howard Buchwald yes um, another untitled painting but then this one has a, a parenthetical title reconsidering Re-Ex-Retus and inversion who um,
1: <laughs> yes yeah, so this uh, Howard Buchwald became well known for literally piercing his canvases so you'll see here Russell there, there's a lot of unprimed canvas yeah, in this yeah. painting. And these arcs of unprimed canvas connect one portal to another, each one of them. And the the portals, there's actually a, a, a highly crafted wooden yeah. portal through which the canvas continues. So the yeah. uh, the unsized canvas or the un, um, primed canvas, excuse me, continues into that sort of perforation. So it's about, what would you say two and a half inches deep, that perforation and the the uh, stretcher bar stretchers themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then there's these marks, each of them about six inches long, every color under the rainbow practically, black, red, yellow, green, blue, white, that sort of fill in the space in between each of these arcs of unprimed canvas that connect the portals.
0: Yeah, the effect is just, it's really interesting. I don't know, it just, it it's a painting so much about its surface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much detail on the surface, but then to like go through the, the, the actual surface, it's kind of mind bending in that way. Um, and like you said, they're not, um, they're so finely crafted uh, yeah. that they, they don't feel violent or anything. They, they're at these like angles and, and they feel very purposeful. Um, but they also feel like Again, this is something a guard should watch out for because they feel like a perfect finger size hole, don't they?
1: Yeah, especially here you can kind of see the the wall behind and the one on the very yeah, bottom. Yeah, yeah. The other ones you can't see what's behind, but the one at the very bottom from the right vantage point you can see the, the yeah. white wall behind.
0: Yeah. It plays with the idea of dimension in some mm-hmm. way. It's like... It's almost it, it takes my mind to sort of sci-fi places of yeah. of sort of representing other dimensions or something in this in this strange way. Well, are there any last thoughts you had or wanted to let people know about uh, since we've we've kind of made the circle? Yeah, you know,
1: now now we're back to where we began, and I guess the other point I wanted to make is that I think it's really profound that this exhibition of paintings is happening, taking place in Frank Duvenec's former studio, because mm. we know him best as a painter. So the reason for, you know, the way this room was originally used, it's sort of bringing us back to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, bringing the focus on painting yeah. in a space that's, yeah, like you you pointed out before we started recording has been like a mix of painting and sculpture. Yeah. So it's it's rare to see it only dedicated right. to painting, right. definitely. So, definitely not a Duvenek painting.
1: <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> but again, like Duvenek was, you know, Ahead of his time, yeah. some people would say, and some of these Barbara Rose, the curator, was certainly thinking these paintings were ahead of their time too.
0: Well, and and, and it, you don't have to go that many generations away from Dvořák to see the, the the students he taught who yeah. went on, and and the and the people he influenced, and in the way that his sort of, you know, at the time wild brushwork um, turned into sort of the the much more expressionistic styles later. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it is still a part of that lineage very clearly. Yeah. So, Well, thank you so much for being my it's guest today. It's been a
1: pleasure, really. 100%, I've loved talking to you about this stuff. Great. <laughs> thank you for
0: listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. The museum is currently open, but please visit our website for the most up-to-date information about operating hours and also to reserve your advanced online registration, which is required to limit capacity. The museum has been selling out often on the weekends, so you'll definitely want to reserve your spot before making a trip. Current special exhibitions are American Painting, The 80s Revisited, Future Retrieval, Close Parallel, Frank Duvenek, American Master, and Kwayum Aga, all the flowers are for me. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we also have an Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.